Welcome back, everyone, to the Dice Pirates podcast. This is episode 15. We are going to be taking a trip to the Red Planet as we talk about two of our favorite Mars-themed board games. I am your captain, as always, joined by professional lounger Matt. And Max, how are you guys doing? Doing good. Glad to be back on. Uh, I don't I don't know, man. I'm not feeling great. Um, like, what are some of the symptoms of scurvy? Because several of my teeth have fallen out. Is that okay? I mean, that doesn't seem good, but also I'm not equipped to diagnose that. Fortunately, we do have, for the first time joining us, we have Dr. Dennis. Good God, man. What has happened to you? Well, you know, we don't have a lot of food options. We've pretty much just been living off Slim Jims and G Fuel for the last uh, six months. I, I've, I've got the remedy for you. Drink, drink this. Uh, wait, this is a health potion. That's like a, this is a straight-up greater health potion. Sweet. It's it's a mix of uh, seawater, oil of vitriol, and rum to wash it down. You can really taste the vitriol. Don't ask too many questions. <laughs> Just drink it. We are so excited to have Dennis on the podcast. is fantastic, especially as he is definitely our resident space nerd. And that's, of course, going to be very exciting given the discussion we have. But we're going to go ahead and move on to our soapbox. I actually have something that I would like to talk about. So... Recently, um, in the, the past week, uh, Eric Lang, you know, a very notable figure in the board game industry, put out a tweet where he challenged the idea of the gateway game. I want to just read like a, a little quick snippet of kind of what he was throwing out there. Um, he says, the hobby game industry's Overton window of gateway game is utterly ridiculous. Pandemic and Ticket to Ride are great strategy games, not gateway games. Uno is a gateway game. Time to recalibrate. We in Hobby Tabletop have built up this incredible tolerance for complexity, price point, and novelty as selling points in games. In fact, we have come to fetishize novelty and complexity to where we stopped recognizing it as a deterrent for most of the potential market. He goes on to explain a lot more of what he means and kind of just the, the general idea of this that when we talk about these as gateway games, we're sort of excluding the rest of games from the idea of what a gamer is and sort of sectioning ourselves off. And that that makes us less inclusive in general. And I kind of wanted to push back a little bit on that because, you know, I think a lot of his argument is that we shouldn't classify these as gateway games because it inherently means that some games are more board games than other games. Which, which is a fair point. You don't want to section off parts of your parts of your audience, especially as gaming grows. You want to be able to bring everybody in. And it's definitely true that, especially lately, hobby gaming has focused a lot on complexity and incredible, incredibly long rulebooks. I mean, look at On Mars, for example. A lot of assorted games, very long rulebooks. Many games lately, especially some of those that have been getting very highly funded on Kickstarter, like the Monster Hunter World board game have tons of miniatures, incredibly huge, expensive miniatures. They really are a table presence. So it, there is this idea of hobby board gaming has in many ways kind of pushed this direction. But I kind of want to push back on his idea that we need to redefine what a gateway game is because we're isolating ourselves. Because yes, there have been a lot of games that have come out there. But I don't think that we're isolating. I don't think that's the entire story there. I mean, you look at the American Tabletop Awards and the games that they recognized from this past year. They recognized early games like Abandon All Artichokes, 
You have The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine, a casual game. And then on not necessarily like easy games to understand necessarily, but games that are more accessible just in theme. I mean, you have games like Calico, Wingspan, Parks, It's a Wonderful World. The Buttonshy developer, they are putting out a lot of these pocket games that are incredibly short, easy to play. And so I, I don't think that there's... Well, yes, there is a movement towards these games, and people are putting out these very heavy games. We have not moved as a whole that direction. There's still plenty of diversity in what we're offering. And yes, these games that do provide minis are going to make a lot of money, and they're going to continue to be the focus of a lot of these huge developers because they will make a lot of money. That's how it works. When you think about hobby tabletop gaming, a lot of these publishers that are putting stuff out are going to think about Twilight Imperium, Gloomhaven with the success that it had. But I don't think that just because that's the focus of a lot of the publishers means that the individuals involved are necessarily excluding games. I think there's also, when you talk about cultural experiences versus games, and I think that's why maybe he didn't mean to focus exactly on a game like Uno, something that I think a lot of people look at as a game that probably most people have played or at least come into contact with. And I suppose that's really kind of like my final point to sort of wrap this up a little bit is just that talking about hobby tabletop gaming, there is a definite difference between a game like Sleeping Queens or Uno or Spades and something like Ticket to Ride or Risk or Carcassonne, some of these more traditional board games in sort of the depth and the the time investment that you have to put into them. And so I do think it's worthwhile to talk about games that you could classify as a gateway game that allows people to sort of take a small leap into it without taking a big leap. And I guess just kind of the last thing I want to say here is I think that this is kind of, I don't think it's a productive conversation to be having because I don't think that there is this disparity between you know, oh, these are casual gamers that don't play real tabletop games, and these are the real gamers who play Twilight Imperium, and I play Dune, and I play On Mars, and therefore I am a real tabletop gamer. Because you do see people who play widening. There are so many more people who play. There are games that appeal to so much more. And so I think it's an odd, I think it's an odd hill to get hung up on is this idea that we need to redefine our board games as something more inclusive, because I think we inherently already are. You know, I thought about this a pretty good bit after you uh, brought this tweet up a few days ago, and I've been thinking about it. And, you know, I think, I mean, I think you raised some good points. I mean, is this like a productive conversation to have? But I also, the more I think about it, I think Eric Lane might be on to something with this. I think there's a couple of ideas in what he said that are worth considering. One is he's sort of pointing to this uh, elitism of like we do, and we've done it on the show a ton, like we put popular family games in this kind of box of like, eh, you know, like those aren't really good gateway games because they're kind of like not great games. But it kind of stuck with me that he pointed out Uno, right? Because that's actually a game that we play a lot over here in our house. It's one of the few games that all of the kids uh, will sit down and play. It's also a fascinating game because it's one of these games that nobody really knows how the rules work. It's just like one of these, like uh, every family has their own like weird house rules and like uh, tweaks to it. But it's just one of the few things that everybody kind of gets together and plays. And I think there's an argument to be made that like anything that brings you to the table to play games is a gateway game. And, uh, and to his point about fetishizing complexity, that's a really interesting statement to make on a show where we're about to talk about a Vidal uh, Lacerda game. 
because I mean, we do love ourselves on complexity here on the heavy end of the hobby. And I think it has skewed our perspective a little bit because I would make the argument that like pandemic is a good gateway game, but is it, I don't know how hard, how complex is pandemic anymore? I don't even know if I can see the forest like for the trees. I mean, have, I don't know if I've ever even tried to teach pandemic to like somebody that's never played a hobby game. So I think he's just kind of asking us to take a look at like one, are we, uh, are we, are we pushing some games from the table just because they're popular historically popular family games and it's kind of like lame to to like them like uh i don't know like uno's like the michael bolton of uh board games you know like it's uh it's uh it's not popular to be like man i love me some uno but like man michael bolton he sells he sells some records he'll still he's still selling out arenas you know like uh you know michael bolton could get somebody into music uno could get somebody into deeper board games dennis and max what do you guys think about this uh this idea of like what really constitutes a good gateway game i mean for the record uh i actually taught my parents how to play pandemic okay as a as a gateway game and and they went home and bought it and uh, they still play it from time to time so i think pandemic is a fantastic gateway game i mean the complexity is not up there and uh but it does introduce some uh deeper mechanics than your your bog standard you know monopoly game of life you know that's that's in everybody's board game closet I think that's a big part of kind of the discussion and the way to look at it here, though, is like, I mean, there is a difference between playing Uno and playing Terraforming Mars, for example. And it's not that Uno is not a fun game. I love playing Uno. It's a good game to play with the family. It's fun to do. But there is a difference in the way that you play. When we get together for game nights, we're playing different games. We're playing these, you know, slightly more deep games, games that we enjoy. And when we want to share that with people, and we talk about gateway games, we're talking about the games that we think would be good to bring people from enjoying simpler games to the kind of games we enjoy now. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it doesn't, we're not so much excluding people who play that or trying to put them down. It's just that there's this understanding that these games can be difficult to get into sometimes. And so you want to make sure that you're sensitive to that when you're putting a game in front of somebody. And yeah, I mean, these games like Uno and Digzit, I mean, is an incredibly popular one. These are still very good games, but there is definitely a difference in the mechanics. Gateway used as a descriptor has such a, it's very fluid definition because you're, you've got to be within the context of wherever it is that you're at. And so things like Uno and Monopoly, they'll introduce you to maybe a single or maybe even two layers of a game mechanic and yeah so you want that if you are you know in first grade learning the alphabet learning your numbers you have to learn all those things before you can get into algebra before you even get into you know literary theory you just start with the simple stuff so in a sense yes you know all this simple stuff is a gateway game but that's not really what we're talking about usually in the context of who we're with uh, we're not trying to get together and introduce the most simplest and basic thing, unless we're hanging out with aliens, I guess. Um, speaking of Martians. But, you know, we're trying to get people on to another level with a little bit more complex layers, you know, more and more layers. And so, contextually, when I say I'm trying to get someone into the board gaming hobby and I talk about gateway games, it's really to using, you know, basing my understanding of their personality, how to onboard them with nothing that's going to scare them away based off of who they are. 
I mean, if someone is a mega genius, yeah, you could start with On Mars. But most people are, you know, not necessarily quote-unquote filthy casuals, but people just don't know, and you don't want to overwhelm them and create a bad experience. And so when I use gateway games, it's about trying to get people to have a board gaming experience where they have fun, but it doesn't defeat them. See, I think you're right on. I mean, if you actually go back and listen, plug to our back catalog, if you go back and listen to our gateway game episode way back in the early days of the show, we, uh, I think we talked about that the first rule of thumb for what is a good gateway game is really to know your audience. Because I think it varies pretty widely. I mean, I think Eric Lane's uh, point here is uh, is generally solid, and I think we can, we should widen our view of what a gateway game is. But that also means that certain very complex games could still be a gateway game for the right person. I mean, you know, we started in a hobby, Max and I, with some pretty heavy games right out of the gate. But we've also, you know, we played some things early on in our lives. I mean, Max had experience with Warhammer 40K. I played a lot of Magic and had dabbled in a few a few hobby board games so jumping into the hobby in earnest in like 20 you know 15 2014 whenever we got started it, it wasn't a big jump to pick up several like fantasy flight games titles and just kind of go into it but that's us so i just think you know know your audience know what they like i still honestly think the best gateway game is uh if you just match the theme to a person if somebody loves mars terraforming mars could be a great gateway game because they're going to love the art, they're going to love the ideas that it's presented, and they'll pick up on the mechanics because they love the theme. So I really think more than like asking yourself how complex this game is, is just, does this person like this, the world that this game is trying to create? I think that's exactly the right way to take this. It's not about saying, oh, more complex games are the goal, and these smaller, less complex games are the way to get people there. It's about saying, how can we share what we enjoy with other people? And yeah, if Twilight Imperium is your way to get into the experience, if you're willing to invest that time and have somebody teach you, more power to you. That's amazing. Like it, it would be a, an amazing place to start and it'd be a fun experience. So, and I think, you know, if that's, I'm, you know, absolutely not trying to sit here and say, oh, Eric Lang is terrible. This is a, a, a bad take. Maybe we just need to really look at, you know, the way we're defining gateway games because it is just about, you know, how the person who wants to play is going to, what they're going to be up for. While we're on the topic, I really think we should play Uno on a Dice Pirates game night. I'm just saying, it's a classic. It's a great game. I'd, I'd love to hit you guys with some draw fours. Still, I mean, let's do Matt, it. you still don't... You don't know how to play the actual game, though. I mean, you're just going to lose and be salty about it. So if it's... I play a draw four on your draw four, do you draw eight? Uh... For maybe you know i'm not really good at math i don't like to get into the math what i like is this new uno where they have blank wilds that you draw in like the, what you're gonna do that gets interesting when you have kids i'll just go ahead and say i will 100 percent gateway my uno and i'll say the only good uno is the original uno that that is a firm stance i will take get out of here with that garbage opinion <laughs> um, but i don't want to uh, i don't want to keep make this discussion last the entire episode of course I do want to go ahead and throw this to Dennis because he does have a soapbox for us as well. Yeah, sure. So I know we're going to be talking about terraforming Mars in general later on in this podcast. But uh, if you're listening to this and you're a fan of terraforming Mars, uh, you're probably aware that the terraforming Mars big box is currently being released after a, a very successful Kickstarter campaign last year. And uh, there's currently some controversy over uh, the appearance of the 3D tiles that come with the big box. And specifically, uh, there is some review bombing going on over at BoardGameGeek. 
And what's interesting about this is that uh, this review bombing actually started back in February uh, when the designers released the production model of the big box tiles uh, in, a, in a Kickstarter video. So even before the game was released, people were signing on to BoardGameGeek and giving it one-star reviews. And uh, so currently, you know, we're standing at 68 five-star reviews and 61 one-star reviews. So, you know, clearly this review bombing is, is skewing the results. The tiles themselves really aren't bad. I mean, they're they're injection molded. They're not 3D printed, sure. But that's that's due to the economies of scale. I mean, we're having to mass produce, you know, tens of thousands of these tiles to, to ship these big boxes all over the world. Uh, and I really think that these tiles are going to stand out after a few coats of, of paint or maybe a good wash. Uh, in fact, Dice Pirate Max, uh, he's received his big box and uh, some of the, the pictures that he's uh, sent me where he's applied a wash to these tiles look outstanding. Well, to be fair, uh, on the ocean tiles that I sent you a picture of, I primed them first, then I did a, a like a sky blue wash, then I did a dark tone wash, or dark blue tone wash, and then I did an ultramarine paint and wash on that. And then it just looks like ocean from space is what I feel like. So the tiles, are uh, you, it's definitely there for you to make it better than it is. That's kind of the point of my soapbox, though, is like, you know, what game that comes with, with these th- with 3D components, you know, whether it's Terraforming Mars or uh, Warhammer or a, or a Simon game, you know, wh- wh- which of those games aren't immediately enhanced when you apply paint to the miniatures? I mean, this is, this is just an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity to to really customize the game and and paint the tiles and really make it stand out as opposed to something to whine about because they don't exactly match the 3D renders from the Kickstarter campaign. That's my soapbox. You know, it's funny to me to like see the board game community kind of get in an uproar over something like we're a very we, we can be so precious sometimes as gamers i feel like like oh these these tiles are not exactly the way they looked and uh it, it, it probably doesn't help though the publisher here in this case that so many people for the last few years have been making really good aftermarket upgrades for terraforming mars in fact uh dennis you know you picked up a really nice set so the expectation that like the official Terraforming Mars stuff was going to be better than anything that had already been released, I think may have been probably unrealistic expectations. I mean, there were uh, just, you know, you had some great uh, 3D printed uh, tiles, 3D tiles that we've been playing with for a few years that completely enhanced the game. But just the other day, I was on Instagram and saw a manufacturer, and I wish I could name check them right now. Maybe we can put them in the notes, who, who had these incredible wooden tiles that were to- totally unlike anything I've seen. Uh, I-, I saw that for Terraforming yeah, Mars. They, oh, look, man. they look amazing. And so when you have like craftspeople out there c- creating unique aftermarket upgrades, it's like, did, was this even necessary? That's the big question that I have. Honestly, was this even necessary at this point in the life cycle of Terraforming Mars for them to have released official 3D tiles? I mean, I, I gather that the big box storage solution was kind of needed, but like, you know, maybe they should have just left well enough alone and let the uh, let the aftermarket kind of stuff just meet this need. Well, I think when you gauge the value of the uh, the 3D tiles with the storage solution, it's actually a good value. Because if I recall correctly, the 3D tiles that Dennis got, they were around $100 just for the tiles. Um, but with this, you get the storage solution and the tiles. You know, but granted, it is Stronghold Games. and 
if you even look at the original Terraforming Mars box and the components, going back from any deluxe game that we have now and looking at it, you'd be like, oh, what is this hot mess? This, I mean, it's almost <laughs> like looking at Castles of Burgundy quality. It's getting real close. It's on that end of the spectrum. And so this is a huge upgrade for Stronghold uh, games. You just got to keep that in, in mind that, you know, that's it's a relative upgrade. It's not Jamie Stegmeyer's deluxe components upgrades, but it's still good. All right. Well, can I get up on the soapbox now? I uh, just I'm going to make this quick, guys. Promises this time. No, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the I guess I, I don't have to call this a rumor or confirmation. There's sort of like there's information out there via a strange listing on Amazon that indicates that Tyrants of the Underdark from Gale Force 9 is going to be getting a second edition later this year. Um, I haven't been able to find that anywhere else other than just in speculation on uh, the BGG forum uh, for that game, as well as on this one Amazon listing. I think maybe there's one other retail listing out there right now for uh, a second edition of the game coming sometime in December. But they don't have anything yet official out about it on Gale Force Nine's website. But if uh, the Amazon listing is uh, accurate, then a second edition of the game is coming out in December that includes all of the expansions from the original game and at a lower price point than the original game launched, uh, around uh, fifty to sixty dollars. And it includes and uh, all the plastic components though that were in the original game have now been replaced with little tokens and, and chits. This is really interesting to me for a couple of reasons. If you're not familiar with Tyrants of the Underdark, this came out several years ago as a follow-up, kind of a spiritual sequel in a sense, to the classic uh, Lords of Waterdeep. Uh, the same designers from Lords of Waterdeep took another uh, stab at creating a D&D themed strategy game. Uh, it's set down in the dark world of the Underdark, and it makes an inter- and it really interestingly combines deck building and area control in a way that I don't know that we've seen really anything else in this exact same way. It was a very good game. It was the, you know, the follow-up to a game that I think was really sort of a modern classic, one of those early big hits in the board game renaissance. And yet it really hasn't stuck around. People aren't really talking about this game. It hasn't, it didn't like become as beloved i think uh, nearly as much as uh, lords of waterdeep uh and i think part of that was because when it launched it was real expensive it was almost a hundred bucks it may have been over a hundred bucks uh when it launched and it does come packed with a lot of plastic right but they're not super nice miniatures uh you have an army that you're spreading out across the war across the world in this game but the pieces are these tiny little plastic shields with your house's uh, emblem on them so Yes, there's miniatures of a sort in the game, but they're a little underwhelming. I think if the game had been cheaper and uh, more accessible at a price point, it probably would have gotten noticed. And so I'm actually curious if a relaunch with the simplified components will actually maybe get this game back on people's radars. Uh, Max, I know you picked this game up back in the day uh, when it came out. We've played a pretty good bit of it. What do you think about a second edition coming out? I think if you're going to bring in a second edition, you got to make it cost effective. So I get that. Because it was way overpriced for the plastic you were getting. Because, I mean, $100 for these little tiny shields and some spies, and that was it. We're not even talking about, like, Seamon plastic, which lots of minis for, like, 120 bucks. So it was way overpriced. But it's a great game. It's a sleeper game that I feel like people sleep on because they're just, it's not out there. So hopefully, I'm really hoping this will get it out there and that there'll be more expansion content coming out because it is a very fun game. Uh, 
and I've always enjoyed every time we played, even when I lose. Yeah, which, you know, you have on a couple of occasions, because I'm very good at this game. No, I'm not really. Um, uh, <laughs> no, this uh, this game does several things. I, I don't want to get into, like, a super big rules discussion on this game, but there's the, the one mechanic in this game that is, like, super fun to me is the way it implements spies and the way it kind of makes the theme of, like, spies and espionage really come alive, because you can control these locations by placing your, uh, your little troops out on the board like you do in any area control game. But if, even if you have total control of a space, it, another player can always drop a spy onto that zone, and it disrupts total control, and then it allows them to take actions in that space. So even if you have an area on lockdown, all of a sudden a spy sneaks in, and your troops start getting assassinated, and then an enemy troop comes in and takes over the space where that guy was, and then another guy gets assassinated, and then it starts, they start creeping across, and so you never really have you can never really lock anything down and it's just kind of like it feels almost like real like warfare in the sense that there's always this threat of some unseen danger creeping in it's really really good and then of course the whole thing is powered by deck building gameplay it's great yeah and this is one of the rare cases it's funny to talk about this on the heels of that uh, terraforming mars discussion because this is one of the rare cases where i think actually downgrading the components of the game might be to its advantage because even though the little plastic shields are nice and kind of cool looking when you set them out they're not necessary. They're not that, you know, it's a, a little token representing your soldier is going to be just as much. And if it brings the price point down and makes more people want to buy this game, that's actually probably a really, really good thing. So this is an interesting strategy of going in a different direction instead of like, you know, blinging out your board game with even more elaborate uh, miniatures. Uh, actually scaling it down is uh, an interesting tactic. I'm curious to see if Gale Force 9 will, will pull this off and this game will get back on the radar as a relevant uh, game again. We are going to go ahead and move on to our main discussion now. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back talking about terraforming Mars and on Mars. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to dive uh, headfirst into our main topic today, which is a uh, Mars face-off. We've got two uh, excellent Mars-themed games that tackle the idea of terraforming and colonizing the Red Planet uh, in two very distinct ways, uh, in two very different styles of games. They're not the only two Mars games out there. Uh, Mars games uh, sort of had a brief, uh, have had a brief moment in the last few years, like Viking games and zombie games. It's just, it feels like yeah, all of a sudden everybody wanted to make a Mars game. But two that have really uh, risen to prominence as kind of the, the cream of the crop are Terraforming Mars uh, and On Mars. And even though they're sort of uh, superficially similar, exploring the idea of uh, landing the red planet and trying to set up a colony, they take a wildly different approach to exploring it, both in how they implement the theme and how they play. So we wanted to break those two games down and give you a sense of if you, if you want a Mars colonization game, which one is right for you. So first up, we'll take a look at Terraforming Mars. This has been uh, one of the hottest games in, in board gaming uh, since it came out way back in 2016. I mean, it's a perennially on the hotness list. It's currently uh, highly ranked on the BGG's all-time list. And uh, probably for a reason. It's a pretty darn good game. Uh, so we wanted to bring our uh, kind of resident Terraforming Mars number one fan uh, in the group, Dennis, on to kind of break the game down for us and give us uh, his thoughts on it. So Dennis, if, nobody, if somebody's never played it, what is Terraforming Mars? So in Terraforming Mars, uh, you are a corporation in charge of colonizing and terraforming the Red Planet. 
Uh, and basically the goal is to, uh, after, you, after you terraform Mars, is to have the highest terraforming rating, which are the victory points. So it's basically, it's a, it's a tableau builder with card drafting and resource management. And you're going to try to raise the terraforming parameters, oxygen, temperature, and water, in order to make Mars habitable. And you're going to do this by spending resources. So you have money, which is your general purpose resource, steel and titanium, which give you discounts uh, to certain cards, uh, plants, which convert to greenery, uh, power, which you use to activate certain cards, and then heat, which raises the temperature. Uh, Gameplay-wise, every player is going to take two actions on their turn. They're going to uh, uh, there's your there's your basic standard actions where you can use money to directly raise one of the terraforming parameters or play a tile, or you can play a card from your hand. And this is probably the most common thing you're going to do in terraforming Mars. You can play uh, red cards, which are expensive one-time uh, large bonuses. They're usually pretty dramatic, like crashing a moon into Mars in order to raise the the heat. Or uh, or rate or uh, place ocean tiles. You know, there, it's a it's a one-time effect that's going to alter the game board. Uh, you can play green cards, which uh, will typically increase some of your resource production, or play a tile. Uh, nothing too dramatic. Uh, and then you have blue cards, which usually give you a long-term uh, effect, like uh, in-game victory points or an extra action you can do on your turn. Uh, in addition to the to playing cards, you can try to claim a milestone. So if you're like the first to, to do something, uh, you can claim that milestone for victory points. Uh, or you can fund an award. So when you fund an award, you're essentially gambling that uh, you're going to have the most of something at the end of the game. Like you're going to have the most money production or the most greenery tiles. Uh, you, you have to pay a cost initially, but the payoff can be huge if you if you come out on top. Um, and then uh, once everyone passes, uh, production happens, the generation marker moves up, and the game just proceeds from there until Mars is fully terraformed. And uh, one of the things I really love about this game is that over the course of the game, uh, this dry, dead, uh, dusty game board is going to turn into a vibrant green and blue map. Uh, I don't. I don't know any of any other game really where the game board changes so dramatically from start to finish. Uh, and then the other thing I love about this game is every card has flavor text, and so the game kind of tells a story as you go. Uh, I'm I'm definitely one that's big on story, and I I love reading the flavor text on cards, and uh, and with the cards in particular, uh, they all have these cheesy stock photos that just work. Like, like you know, the production value on the photography, I don't know where they got it from, but it just works. You have to trust me on this. Yeah, they get it as, Getty Images gets a design credit, I think, on this game. Because they clearly got a, a stock art library where just like, that's a picture of a leaf. That, that'll do. Some of them are clearly photoshopped as well. You have a giant space mirror that could not look cartoonier. But yeah, like you said, it, it works. Just the design of the game is kind of this, you know, space fiction, you know, designing Mars, building this new planet. It works. And the design of the board also helps too. You know, you're not focused entirely on the cards. Yeah, they're there, but you know, it really, it all comes together in this really beautiful, just tableau of a game. So I guess, and what I kind of want to focus on is so like, why is this game so popular? Like you said, it's rated incredibly high. Yeah, currently number four on, on Board Game Geek, right? 
Yeah, it's four, four on Board Game Geek in terms of uh, just overall, and it's number six in terms of strategy. I mean, those are incredible numbers, especially for a game that, you know, came out, you know, almost five years ago now. And so why, why do people love this game so much? Why is this a game that, you know, had such a backlash when people did not like the components about it? What makes it so great? I'll jump in. I love Terraforming Mars 2. In fact, it was after playing it the first time with Dennis that I went and bought my own copy in case Dennis moved away. I would still have the ability to play that game. 100%. And I've got a great story about winning my first Terraforming Mars game because it was at Simon Expo. Uh, when these guys who are like super sweaty players were hosting a game and they invited me to play and I was like, I've never played this before. I've played twice, but I was still a, a noob. Uh, and then I ended up beating them coming from behind, and I was like, get wrecked, nerds. <laughs> Great CMON experience, uh, CMON Expo experience. But the, one of the satisfying things about Terraforming Mars is you are building up your engine, and you are having these things that are affecting your choices. Like, are you going in on, on plants? Are you trying to make microbes? Or are you trying to, you know, go all in on pets? But someone else gets like, uh, what is it, the bears or not the bears? Well, yeah, they can, they eat, can eat your pets, right? Yeah, they eat your pets and you're like, no! But it's just satisfying to build up your engine and then see what's happening on the board. That that very direct visual correlation, right? Yes. And so that's why I think it's so so popular is that it's just, it's there, it's accessible, uh, and it's fun. So, yeah, this game... Uh... I, I probably should not be, like, the target person for, like, a fairly heavy, crunchy engine builder, tableau building. These are all things that make me want to go, uh, I don't know. But, like, I end up liking Terraforming Mars uh, every time we play it. It's one of those rare games that I don't have to, like, win uh, to feel like I'm having a good time with. And I think it has to do with a couple of different things. One is, as Dennis said, there's this really satisfying sense of like progress happening. The barren, uh, red planet is starting to become populated and grow. And it's actually, it's not a cooperative game, but there is a sense that we're all like, look at what we're doing. We're, we're building, we're, we're colonizing Mars together. There's, there's oceans and there's trees. There is this kind of a collaborative sense of like everybody working together to do that, even though it is competitive. Uh, and that's that is satisfying. It it also makes you understand why the demand for like the fancier tiles has been so intense because the visual like everyone's looking at this board and you're watching it improve. So almost right away, people started making better tiles than the ones packed in the game because you want that part of the game, that visual part, to be so much more satisfying. And uh, and I will say my enjoyment of the game did go up a lot Dennis when you bought that original set of 3D tiles the first time we played it I was like this is fun and then when you came back with those like really cool ones with the trees and the oceans I was like ooh I like this <laughs> with without a doubt I mean the the base game is is great on its own but but if you go out and you know get some 3D tiles for it whether it's from Etsy or with the big box uh, your game is going to be enhanced, you know, 3,000%. Yeah, and it, the other thing I like about this game is it, there, it is very thematic. Uh, I think, uh, not to get too far ahead, but in, I think probably uh, more so in a pure, in a pure sense than, it's, it, in a, than the second game we're talking about on this episode. Because the very first thing that happens in this is you're given an identity. You're, you're, you're a certain corporation with a real distinct like flavor and personality. And then, like you said, all these cards kind of start to tell a, a strange story about the things your corporation is doing and the technology you're acquiring. 
Uh, it's just a fun game with a loose framework of a story and a strong like sci-fi feel. It really, it really, really works. It's a bit like crunchy and like heavy of a game to a certain degree. Uh, understanding how these cards are gonna like work together to create efficient strategies uh, does require that kind of like three-dimensional chess kind of thing. So it is like it's a fun game to play. It's probably a hard game to get really, really good at. I think for some people, and then it's very fiddly. It's sort of notoriously fiddly. You have lots of little cubes that you're managing. Oh, the setup and breakdown is terrible. Again, it's a weird game that has become more popular in some ways than some of its parts. A game with like hundreds of cards to shuffle and tons of cubes to have to move around and slide and keep track of where everything was. It shouldn't. It should not have worked as well as it does. It's a testament to how fun it is to play. It definitely does feel in some ways like an anomaly. I mean, you know, throwback to last episode as we were playing Bitter Board Gamers, you know, with the review, you know, too many cards, too much of a tableau, too many resources, too many actions. Like you said, there's a lot happening in this game, and it is surprising that more people didn't bounce off of it. But I really think that this game connected itself to its theme in a way that absolutely pulled it all together. Because you could turn this into something else, but I, I think that... It inherently needs the Mars theme. I mean, you are working to raise the oxygen level, the temperature level. You're working to, you know, get so many oceans on the board. There are tangible things that you're doing, and they are tied to terraforming Mars, you know, as the title would suggest. And so you do tell that story. And so no matter how you're doing, getting to see that progress definitely pulls you into the game. Whether or not you connect to who you're actually playing getting to feel that progression is definitely a very interesting experience. I think one of my favorite parts about playing this game, though, is how the game will change as you play. And a lot of games do change, especially engine builders. As you go, it becomes easier to do things. But in some ways, this game actually makes it harder to do things the further on you get into the game. Of course, your engine gets better. If you have a really solid engine, you can keep buying cards. But once you get towards the end game, oftentimes... There will be no more ocean tiles to put out, so you don't have that option. Sometimes the oxygen may already be where it needs to be, so you don't you can't push that further anymore. And maybe your strategy was geared towards doing a certain thing. Maybe you went all in on heat production and you were trying to raise the temperature, and now you've risen the temperature all the way, but oxygen still needs to go up, and now you need to retool. So I think there's a really fun dynamic there in how you know, as the game begins, you're trying to get your engine built up and it's difficult to make those decisions, but they're also wide open for you. But as you get later on to the game, the things you're allowed to do actually narrow way down while the things that you can do are so much wider. And so figuring out how to focus on that, I think, is an incredibly neat dynamic that the game actually funnels you into really well. It's got a lot of uh, analysis paralysis for me when I play this because there is so much to think about. And so many different uh, variables in terms of like, trying to figure out which cards to play. Uh, the other thing that I'd say is like a mild sort of like, mm, do I like this or do I not? Is I mean, there's like a little bit of take that in this game. You can target people with cards that destroy or screw up, uh, you know, things that they have already out in their tableau, and that can be frustrating. You know, if you feel like if you're trying to, you know, develop ants or whatever and somebody drops like a attack that kills your insects <laughs> and that just is like oh you know that that can be uh frustrating so it can be a little bit of a, like a nastier game than a traditional euro where everyone's just kind of doing their thing this is this is a little more cutthroat it's a little more in your face uh, that's i don't know what do you guys think is that do you like that side of it does that work or is it too uh is this game a little too aggressive 
I mean, that that is an aspect of it, but that's definitely the minority of, of cards in this game. Uh, I mean, sure, you can you can drop a moon on the planet, and it's going to have repercussions. And thematically, you know, you're choosing where you're going to drop that moon. So if I drop the moon on Max, you know, I raise the temperature three steps, but I also destroy all his plants. I mean, that's just tough luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's just tough. Yeah. That's just tough yeah. luck, Max. <laughs> There definitely is, you know, can, there definitely can be a take that element. And, you know, fortunately, I think most of the time it is fairly limited. And as you're playing the game, you should be in a position where that shouldn't, that shouldn't set you back too much. It may really, it may take away one thing that you're doing, but hopefully most of the time, because the main gameplay is based around the cars, it's not going to affect you too much. But I do want to ask you, Dennis, what do you think about the expansions to this game? Because, of course, what we're talking about so far is mostly just the base game, and there was a lot of complexity with that. And then they decided to, in, in a very um, Dune way of, of doing things, they decided to take their already complex game, and they decided to turn it way up, and they decided to add expansions that severely increase the complexity and, i mean you had uh the one expansion that introduces a government system where you are all voting yeah. on different actions so what do you think about the expansions how do they fit into the overall terraforming mars experience so there are there are four main expansions um you have the prelude expansion which actually speeds the early game up because it gives every player uh these two uh, prelude cards that they can choose from and these basically directly increase one of your your uh, resource production, or it might give you like an early city on the board, or or some plants, or I mean it's it's just a direct bonus to to speed the early game along. Then there's the uh, the, the colonies expansion, which if you've ever seen the show uh, The Expanse, it kind of adds that feel to the game because it adds the outer solar system colonies to the game, like little little moons and planetoids that you can. Uh, send a colony ship to to collect, you know, various resources. Uh, then there's the Venus expansion. Um, and the Venus expansion, uh, it adds a whole new game board, like a sideboard, where you can try to, to terraform Venus and raise its terraform rating as a, as a fourth parameter. Um, but what's interesting, though, is that the Venus expansion uh, actually adds a mechanic to speed the game along, where at the end of every uh, generation, after all players have passed, one of the terraforming parameters is going to automatically be raised up. Uh, and then the final expansion that you mentioned is the uh, turmoil expansion, which adds a, a, a political system to the game. Sort of a Mars government with various political parties that have agendas. And I can just say, when, I, when we're playing this game at home, uh, we'll typically play with the Venus expansion to speed the game along. And we'll definitely add in the turmoil expansion because it just adds a whole layer of complexity and random events that are kind of throwing a wrench in your plans that uh, I think just takes that game up another notch. The Colonies expansion, you know, we've played with that a couple times, but um, uh, that does tend to, to add more time to the game than anything else. I'm glad that they added mechanics in to speed the game along, because of course that is an issue that you have when you add expansions onto a game is you can potentially take a long run time and you can push it even longer which if you're willing to sit down for it is you know is fine but sometimes you do want to be able to play with that extra part to the game and you don't want to have to sit down so i do like that they went in different you know they, i do like that they went kind of in odd directions with it too like being able to vote on these policies extending these outer colonies i think that was a really fascinating way 
to go with the game for sure. What is your personal favorite on those? And what would you, if somebody's picking up Terraforming Mars for the first time, would you recommend any of these expansions early on? Or would you recommend that they just see if they enjoy the game itself? I mean, early on, I would say definitely Venus and Prelude. And once you've kind of got a good grasp on the on the game mechanics, I think adding in Turmoil uh, really, you know, it adds that, that extra layer of, uh, of fun to the game because... Uh, when that when that uh, political card turns up, uh, you don't you don't know what it's going to be. It could be a bonus that helps all the players. It could be you know a giant dust storm that everyone's going to have to contend with and prepare for. So uh, it just sort of you know turns the planet against you in interesting ways that uh, you'll have to adapt to with your engine or fall behind. And I think it's just I think it's great. <laughs> that does sound very cool, and it sounds like something that even builds into the story of the game itself. You're fighting against Mars itself as you're trying to terraform it. All right, so that's uh, that, that's Terraforming Mars, the first game in our uh, Mars doubleheader here. And so we're going to shift gears for a little bit, give you guys a quick overview on, uh, on Mars, and then we'll uh, kind of compare the finer points of these games head-to-head. Uh, on Mars takes a totally different tact on the colonizing Mars theme. Totally different style of gameplay, taking it in a more traditional uh, worker placement Euro uh, space. But because it's uh, another game from designer uh, Vital Lacerda, it is uh, notable for its complexity and the intricacy with which its engines, uh, with which its various parts work together. Max has quickly become our uh, resident uh, Lacerda nerd. So give, give us a breakdown of On Mars and tell us what you're liking about this game. So first, uh, let's talk about, you know, so Terraforming Mars has 10 mechanics to it. On Mars jumps in with 16 mechanics. Uh, not only that, but it's weight. It is Lacerda's heaviest rated game um, that he's made so far. Uh, it sits at a 4.64, whereas Terraforming Mars is only at a 3.2. And while you are having asymmetric corporations that you represent in Terraform Mars, you're really just this nameless chief astronaut bureaucrat, basically, is who you are in On Mars. You're just nobody but a color, and nothing else matters besides that. And that's fine. But ultimately, On Mars breaks down into it's just this really deep, it's a simple but deep worker placement game where everything that you do interacts with what everyone else does because uh, you only have 10 action spaces on two sides of the board or five on each side and you can only take those action spaces if you have uh, your placement or your astronaut is on that side of the board so while you're going through doing these things such as obtaining blueprints to build future buildings uh, or to make future buildings advanced buildings or you can get certain goods and stuff like that from um, or you're pulling resources from the warehouse you're advancing technology, and technology that you advance is all stuff that can be used by anybody else. But of course, if someone uses any of your technology, that may allow you to upgrade your technology for free. And so that's the thing about Lacerda's games, is they are intricate. Everything interacts with something else. And if you're not careful, you will definitely be overwhelmed by his games. They just make your brain go into overdrive. Um, And that's okay, I think, personally. Uh, because we need complex games that hurt our brains. And in fact, uh, I was trying to tell this the other day. I can't remember what I told you, but I was like, I feel like my brain has a workout. You, you've heard of the runner's high, you know, people go on marathons and they just are like just feeling all the brain chemicals. 
when I play on Mars, the brain chemicals, when I get done, are just out there. I'm like, I feel good. I could take on the world right now. And that's just my brain. Um, and even Ian, at one point, he came up with this meme where it was like, the, what was that meme? It was the... The future if we all played Lacerda games. Yes. And I'm like, that is 100% true. If we all played Vita Lacerda games, the future would be amazing. It might be Star Trek. I don't know. So you're walking away from the table with this like on Mars high, like sweating, but like excited and like endorphins rushing. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, 100%. Sure, running is great, but have you tried playing Lacerda games? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but no, you're right. This game does have a, a lot to do, but I think, and that's kind of the beauty of this game particularly, and I have not played other Lacerda games. I, I I can't speak to those, but this game in particular, there's really not a lot of randomness to the game. There is a little bit of randomness in the setup itself, what cards are available, what power-ups come out. But once you see the setup of the game and once you know what's out, pretty much everything from there is just 100% worker actions you're taking things you're interacting with the other players there's almost no randomness to it at all besides you know what each player is doing and so i i think you know that is of course very different from on mars a game that you know thrives on the card drafting and the mechanics of not knowing what you're going to get and having to adapt around that on mars focuses very much on if you can come up with a game plan and you can work on that you are going to thrive and yeah, like you said, the game is incredibly intricate. There are buildings that the colony will need, and you get benefits if you build them. But if the colony does not need them, you can build it if it fits your strategy, but it's not going to benefit you outside of that. And getting technologies early can be very helpful to you, but if you spend the time leveling up those technologies, maybe you're just allowing other people to use high-level technologies, which allow them to get ahead, which is uh, the way that I managed to win our second game, where I went very low on technology, but I was able to use other people's technology to boost my own engine to get to a point where I didn't need to go back and invest in those. So there are different ways to play, but I like that there's very little chance in the way that you're interacting with things. You can, If you can see far enough ahead, you have a very good chance of doing well in this game. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no chance at all. I mean, it is... Uh... It is a Swiss clock. I mean, it is running uh, on a tight set of gears, and there's really no randomness about it. If you make smart choices, if you know what you're doing, this is a game that you could that's solvable. It could be mastered, and that's uh, the beauty of uh, Lacerda's designs. That's the beauty of really any of the Euro-style games that like the high end of the design spectrum. Like they are solvable systems, but it's also uh, it's also a system with a lot of steps between things and arguably maybe you know too many just the simple act of like i'd like to build a, a building and get it to the surface it takes a, a lot of steps i mean it uh i know that's something that uh you've mentioned uh dennis is something that's kind of maybe yeah uh, it takes you know four four actions you know you have to like research the tile get the blueprint for the building then you have to build the tile and then you have to build the building so four actions to get that building out and yeah. That's assuming that your worker robot is next to it and can yes. build in that space <laughs> if you're building the advanced building. So there could be even, you know, more steps involved. Uh, if you're out of workers, you may have to, like, go back to orbit and back down to the surface to unlock your workers. Just so, like, yeah, so four steps could quickly become six or seven or eight just to build that one building. And so is that... Uh, a bug or a feature is one of the uh, probably the endless debates of this game is that a flaw or is that what makes the game great 
it's really it really depends on who you are and what you want out of uh, your gaming experience. Yeah, I think when we were playing uh, Bitter Board Gamers a few episodes ago, someone was like, the cost of Lacerda's games is an extra dollar for every extraneous mechanic. And yes, it's not it's not a gateway game for everybody. In fact, it's not a gateway game for most people on the planet. But the intricacies, I think, although they may seem overwhelming at first, as you play more, you'll become more accustomed to it. I think, and there's this, let me give you a quote. It was a guy from... Um, Uh, vault games who said uh, you'll find yourself pleasantly surprised where you end up and after all it seems to be the best part of on mars Uh, is it the result of the end it's not the result of the end but it's the journey along the way and i think i've played it three or four times i think i've only won once and i have enjoyed every single play of it and i think that says a lot about it I would say that I've actually enjoyed every single play of it too. Although they've all, all three times that I've played it now have actually been uh, very different. The first play of it was, was just stressful. Uh, It didn't really click until late kind of how the systems work, but that's probably going to be true of any little game. You pretty much need to consider your first game as a a dry run. Uh, The second time we played it, it was a two player game. Max and I played and actually I want to throw this out there. I think this game might be best at two players. Uh, at least based on my small sampling of games, because it was very, uh, I don't, I don't really know why having only two players affected it. Maybe it was just uh, less overwhelming and easier to keep track of what was going on on the board. But it felt balanced. It felt like uh, the pace of the game was kind of just right. There wasn't a lot of downtime. You know, Max would take an action, I would take an action. It was quicker. Uh, it was really fun. I did better. I scored a lot more points. Things made a lot more sense. We played it just this past Sunday again at four players, and again it was a little overwhelming. I think that it uh, the complexity kind of ramps up, the uh, competition for spaces, you know, because it's a worker placement, kind of amps up when there's more players playing. Everything about it just kind of gets a little bit more difficult as the player count goes up. So I do think I, I'm gonna kind of throw this out there. I think the game might actually be at its strongest at two players. This is something that Max and I actually talked about after playing the game the last time, and I think it's 100% because the actions are limited and only so much goes onto the board. Trying to come up with a strategy that you can follow through to the end of the game becomes infinitely more difficult as you add people because you might need a certain technology or you might want to build a certain building because that's good for you. But trying to come up with your own strategy while also predict the actions of three other people in this incredibly complex game is nigh on impossible. And so the more people you add, the more chances there are that your intended goal is going to be taken by somebody else before you get there. And so the fewer people you have, if you're just playing with two people, there's a very good chance that the strategy you pick is the strategy that you will be able to fulfill as you go through the entire game. Whereas if you play with four people, you're going to have to be constantly on your toes. You're going to have to be moving back and forth there might not be enough action spaces so the, like i think that's one of the reasons why it's best with fewer people there is a fun mechanic to it that i do just briefly want to touch on again because I, I think it's interesting and dennis actually pointed this out is that you know you move from the planet to orbit and you can place workers when you're in each position but you can't actually retrieve your workers until you go back and he pointed out that this is actually a very similar mechanic to the recent um, Stonemeyer game Pendulum, where as these pendulums move back and forth between various action tracks, you actually cannot take those actions and you cannot retrieve those workers until it moves away again. I thought that was a very interesting idea and also very telling because it, there is a balance between the actions you want to perform and trying to manage your workers. 
That's a pretty interesting parallel. I think in Pendulum and on Mars, you are actually, you're seeing designers trying to shake up this traditional worker placement dynamic in different ways. That's kind of fun. I mean, we've been playing worker placement games for a long time now in, uh, in, in, in board game and hobby board games. And so people are trying to mix that up. So yeah, the idea that you can't reliably get your workers back when you want them, you don't just take an action and then everything resets at the end of the round. It's like, Oh no, you know, I, especially later in the game when the shuttle moves slower, uh, which I don't know if we've explained this really clearly in the rules, but there's this shuttle that moves back and forth between the surface and orbit and it, it takes longer to make that transition later in the game. So you might take an action in orbit, transition to the uh, on the planet phase, and then not be able to get your workers back from the orbit zone for several turns. And but now there's a way you can you can kind of burn an action to get up there and go get them. But then then again, that becomes an economy of of movement that you have to think about. Is that worth it? The game kind of makes more sense to me in my mind, like the complexity of it. It becomes less gratuitous and less indulgent if I think about the game more like a simulation than a traditional board game. And maybe that's not quite the right word for it, but when you think about this idea of trying to build a building on the surface of Mars and all the variables you have to, to plan out to pull that off, I got to make sure my builder robot has moved the certain number of spaces and I got to send a command to him as if the way, the, way Mar the way NASA would have to send a command to a rover and make sure it moves like you know, 20 minutes in advance of how, you know, because of the delay in communication. Start thinking about how, like, what this is trying to actually simulate, and you realize, oh, yeah, you know, building a building on Mars requires a lot of really intricate planning, and if you miss a step, and you do realize, oh, well, this robot wasn't in the right place, it's going to throw the whole thing off. And so, in that sense, it actually, the complexity makes more sense to me if I think about it more like an attempt to really simulate something versus just creating a game. I think going along with that, so you don't just score points and on Mars you score what are called opportunity points. And so there are things where in the progression of the game, it is more to your benefit to do a certain action at a certain time, as opposed to say terraforming Mars, where you kind of, the theme really makes you hit this feel that you are really, you know, growing Mars. You're doing cities, you're planting forests, doing all this stuff. But with on Mars, it really, I mean, I love the components and I love uh, Eno Tools uh, graphics and everything in there. But is, it, I mean, are you really on Mars? I don't know. You could be anywhere, and it's just more of a kind of a administrator type game where you're just trying to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it's a game that I think actually benefits from not paying attention to the theme because there are very few instances where I think the theme informs the game. And if you try to look at it as a one-to-one, -one, like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, set up life on Mars, you're actually going to potentially take worse actions if you're trying to follow the theme than if you're just trying to take the mechanics of the game and learn them. And it's definitely one of those games, like a lot of these more complex games, that the more you play it and the more you understand the progression of the game, it becomes easier and it becomes more fun. But I am curious, Dennis, as somebody who enjoys terraforming mars so much and has loved that game how did you feel about this game coming into it and was it what you expected how did you approach this game so my first game of on mars uh i think i just focused on the right half of the board and just focused on the planet side actions and learning how to do those um and just i think i just completely ignored the space actions and then the second time we played uh this past sunday uh, i kind of looped in the space actions into my strategy 
but I still got burned because I didn't plan on the space shuttle. Like, so, so there's a point in the game, like Matt said, where the uh, the space shuttle gets delayed, moving from the surface to orbit and from the orbit back to the surface. But there comes a point in the game where the space shuttle stops moving, period. And if you don't plan ahead and like buy rockets, which is another thing you have to do, you have to buy rockets uh, so you can launch your own astronauts to space and back. And if you don't have the resources to buy a rocket whenever the space shuttle stops moving, then you've essentially killed your engine at that point. So like the Swiss watch analogy definitely comes into play here. I mean, this game, you can definitely appreciate it for being a finely tuned machine where everything uh, interacts with each other and uh, every part has its place. But if you're an amateur trying to assemble a Swiss watch, like I was uh, on game two of On Mars, uh, you know, you put the gear in the wrong spot, and then, you know, this thing just grinds to a halt and does not do what it was intended to do. So I think this is probably as good a point in any transition to uh, kind of our wrap-up. And so let's put these games head-to-head. So two uh, very good games, two very popular games, uh, t- tackling Mars in two different ways. Is there a way to even pick a winner here and say which one's better? I, I don't know. Uh, how do they stack up? Which ones do we all... Uh, do we prefer and why? So we'll we'll start with you, uh, Dennis. How do you feel about these two games head to head? What what's your pick for your Mars game of choice? I mean, as far as you know, getting it to the table uh, more often and you know, relaxing after you know a hard week, uh, definitely terraforming Mars. That's fair. I mean, on Mars has that thing of like a, a game that sort of feels like work. T- to Max's point, arguably in a good way. It's it's a workout. But it's definitely not a chill like, yeah, let's uh, let's play a little on Mars. You know, let's unwind. You know, you got to be up for it. You got to be ready. So terraforming Mars probably fills that niche more of just a fun, uh, chill game night. So Max, uh, what's your take? How do these games stack up in your mind? Is there even really a way to like uh, say one's better than the other? Are they just too different? I think that they're just too different. I mean, outside of the outside cover of the box, both showing, you know, the planet Mars. There's nothing really that would correlate to them being within the same realm. Terraforming Mars, I love Terraforming Mars, but On Mars is just a completely different beast. In fact, my man crush on Vital Lacerda, and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, I think that's how you pronounce his name, just makes it, Just I just want to play his games. I don't know what it is. But, you know, like you're saying about complexity, if you want the chill version, you got to go with two players. Um, then your mind is not going to hurt as much. But if you want to go crazy, get four players in there. And then afterwards, you'll have the Warhammer sweats. And um, your brain will be like, okay, thanks for that workout. So, I mean, like Max said, they are extremely different games. And he definitely hit the nail on the head earlier when he's talking about, you know, just the way that On Mars approaches its theme. Terraforming Mars is a game about Mars. On Mars is a game that happens to take place on Mars. They are very different. You could put on Mars anywhere. It could be on Venus. It could be on Cuba, for all you know you cared. It could be boats moving back and forth. It could be anything you want, and it would be about the same thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where it is, because the game is about the mechanics, whereas Terraforming Mars itself is about Mars and about turning Mars into a habitable place to live. And so I don't think you can really compare them because, of course, then you're going to be pairing mechanics. And this is not a Castles of Burgundy, Castles of Tuscany situation. They're not the same game, and they're trying to do very different things. I think they both do that very well. I think depending on which game you like is going to depend a lot on who you are. But for me personally, 
I would play both of them again. I would love to play on Mars again. I always love playing Terraforming Mars. And uh, I think at the end of the day, it's about what you're ready to play. Because a big part of board gaming, and I mean, it's the same thing with gateway games. What are you prepared to invest in? The other day, we were going to play a game, and I wasn't sure what we were going to play. And we decided to play Blood Rage. And I don't think I was ready emotionally and physically to play Blood Rage. And so I kind of fell apart. <laughs> at the table and <laughs> had a did. miserable time it you went did. badly i wasn't ready to play that game I, I wasn't ready for it but that's the kind of thing is like a game like on mars i think you need to be ready for it. i think a game like terraforming mars as well like it's more accessible but you need to be you need to be prepared for either game you need to know what you're getting into as you move forward i guess that's my biggest recommendation here is you know if you're gonna choose one of these games to play make sure you're ready for it and you're gonna enjoy the experience of it I'd just like to casually slip in at this point that I scored 220 points in that particular game of Blood Rage, uh, but that's no, not, just just that we don't have to dwell on that. I just want to get it out there <laughs> for the record. Uh, I'm not even going to bother trying to relist the other players' scores. Doesn't matter. Just I scored a lot. So here's my kind of like high level feeling on these. Uh, I think I have the least kind of like dog in this fight because I like both of these games, but don't like love them so i think objectively my feeling is really it comes down to like your relationship with theme versus like systems which one of these games you're going to prefer by far and away terraforming mars is the more thematic of the two games in like a pure sense you know exactly who you are you've been assigned a particular role as a corporation the sense of how your role and your activity in the game interplays is more uh well integrated and there's that tremendous sense of thematic progress even though both these games have kind of a central board that represents the mars surface and they in, in both cases you're putting down a little hexagonal tiles to kind of represent placing things down on the surface for some reason terraforming mars is just so much more satisfying right out of the gate the sense of making thematic progress toward the goal of actually like it says in the title terraforming mars it's much more real it's much more uh, it's much more just uh, satisfying and, and, and a better outcome the weird thing is that out of the box on mars has better components and it feels like it should be more thematic in that sense it's got hands down we haven't mentioned it yet so but so it's be a good time as any on mars has hands down some of the best wooden meeples of any board game ever they're incredible a huge variety of shapes to play around with if you like the tactile experience of moving like interesting little objects around on mars is maybe worth taking a look at because you've got robots and rovers and rocket ships and astronauts and buildings and it's uh and a cool little shuttle i mean it's a really tactilely interesting game there's good graphic design all over the board it's very futuristic but still, it isn't as satisfying watching the colony form. And, and I don't really know how to explain why that is. And it may just be because there's so much other complexity, like your attention isn't as decidedly focused on that central area. Or what's going on on the central area isn't sometimes as important as what's happening on, these, uh, on the margins of the board. Uh, there's just a lot of zones of activity in on Mars that it doesn't feel as like cohesive. All in all, if theme is your bag, terraforming Mars it is your thing. But if systems, and if the way systems connect and interplay together to make other parts move is what you're looking for, if that kind of sparks your imagination, it's hard to, to say there's uh, anything better than on Mars. I mean, it's uh, an amazing thing when you lay into motion plans and they start to click together and everything just starts happening. But it's also very frustrating when you realize that I just can't do what I want to do. So I don't know. I think it really is about who you are as a person, which one of these games is better. This is one of the few times on the show where I think we have just two great games that you almost can't 
make a bad choice. You just have to know yourself and what you're looking for. Dennis needs to share his uh, thought about Ian O'Toole's artwork. <laughs> Go on, Dennis. Okay. So so being a huge rocket nerd, as as you guys introduced me at the start of this podcast, I couldn't help but notice that in the artwork on the On Mars game board, uh, there, there's a picture of a rocket ship with like a boarding ramp, like, you know, like you would board an airplane. And the boarding ramp is leading to the heat shield on the rocket. So if you're entering the atmosphere, the last thing you want is a big hole in your heat shield where where passengers can get on and off the rocket. I mean, that's, that's just a recipe for disaster. And that's just the science nerd in me. I couldn't help but, <laughs> but, but spot that. <laughs> I've changed my mind. Terraforming Mars is obviously the better game than On Thank Mars. You. It's Thank just you. a giant pile of trash. Oh, Ian O'Toole. Ian O'Toole. On Mars is trash. Hey, I have a hot, I have a hot idea for you that just occurred to me while we're on the show is uh the part in on mars where the shuttle stops moving and you have to have your own rockets is that meant to simulate the shift from nasa toward like uh privatized uh rocket ship like when the shuttle nasa shuttle yeah, stopped quite possibly or the world governments just you know collapse and mars is left to fend for itself that's my take on it oh uh, yeah so back home earth <laughs> earth has fallen to ruin <laughs> You know, this game, On Mars could be spiced up by an event deck. That's all I'm saying. Just a, a little bit of, like, flavor text and an event deck. That's all that game needs to, like, really make it sing. But, yeah, two good games, two very different takes on Mars colonization. Both really fun. One of them will possibly break your brain. So those are two of our personal favorite Mars-themed board games. Of course, some being more thematic than others, as we just covered, of course. But definitely, if you're interested in those at all, if you haven't yet picked up those games, definitely give them a shot if it's something that you think you'd enjoy. want to give a big thank you once again to Dennis and Max for jumping on the podcast with us. It was great to have you guys on. So we have some very exciting episodes coming up for you guys with some very cool guests that we are excited to share with you. So definitely be looking out for that. And of course, as always, if you want to get in touch with us, maybe let us know what you thought about these two particular games. Do you agree that Lacerda games are the games of the future? What do you guys think? Matt, how can people reach out to us if they want to get in touch? The best way to find us is to look us up on Instagram at Dice Pirates. You can uh, find us there throughout the week, uh, posted mini reviews, updates on what we're playing, uh, fun stuff to the Instagram story. And uh, best of all, if you message us, if you comment, we will talk back. We love to hear from you. Thank you, as always, for listening. We really appreciate you guys. Definitely join us here next time for some fantastic episodes, and we will see you here on the Dice Pirates. Mm-hmm.